This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, What does genetic testing have to do with reparations? A professor of anthropology makes the political connection. Hospital closings and endemic health problems have made rural America more vulnerable to the coronavirus. And Mumia Abu-Jamal tells us what a pandemic looks like from behind prison walls. But first, Black America's most prolific political author, Dr. Gerald Horn, has watched capitalist structures crumble under the impact of COVID-19 and the system's own contradictions. The professor of history and African-American studies says the pandemic has shaken global capitalism to its core. It's striking to note that in the 14th century, the plague erupted in Europe, which destabilized feudalism and set the stage for the arising of the system under which we're now laboring called capitalism. It's ironic, indeed, that in 2020, we have the eruption of a new pandemic, which is setting the stage, it seems to me, for the erosion of the innards of this system known as capitalism. And in fact, just today, Lawrence Summers, the former president of Harvard University, former secretary of the Treasury, wrote an editorial for the Financial Times of London, where he suggested that we may be at a hinge moment. He put it in terms of the rise of Asia, given the fact that China has been relatively successful, compared to the United States at least, in terms of suppressing COVID-19, along with Vietnam, along with Taiwan, along with uh, South Korea, North Korea, uh, even those island uh, bastions of white supremacy that are close to China, close to Asia, speaking of uh, New Zealand, Australia. And he says that compared to the response in the United States and the North Atlantic community, where the United States and Britain, in terms of per capita deaths, are, are running neck and neck, and where you have a nation like Sweden, which is taking a major gamble the health of its population in terms of, in a sense, letting the virus rip. Although I haven't seen a breakdown in terms of how many uh, immigrants of Somali, Iraqi, Afghan origin have died in Sweden. So in any event, uh, this pandemic is a major news story. I think that assuming that humanity survives it, it'll go down in history as being of a similar profundity as the Cold War, as World War II, as World War One, and of course, of similar profundity as the plague in the 14th century in Europe. Well, certainly the pandemic has shown that the United States does not have a public health system worthy of the name. Well, as the saying goes, uh, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. And the tide has gone out with regard to this pandemic. And we see the United States, or U.S. imperialism more precisely, naked as a japer, as the saying goes. Not only lacking a public health care infrastructure, 
which is going to exacerbate this crisis in this country for some time to come, but also lacking a paid sick leave policy, lacking universal health care, lacking an adequate policy with regard to elder care, with regard to child care. The absence of the latter hampers the ability of first responders and frontline workers to go to the aid of their fellow citizens in hotels, you know, in mass transit systems. So this pandemic basically has ripped the mask off of U.S. imperialism and has revealed for all to see a certain kind of ugliness, a certain kind of ugliness that I must say has its roots in a kind of white supremacy and racism. Recall that we're still laboring in an era and an epoch of anti-government psychosis. Recall that the now allegedly sainted uh, U.S. President Ronald Wilson Reagan said the scariest words you ever want to hear is that I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Now, where does that nonsense come from? It comes, I think, from our recent history, that is to say how the U.S. government was forced to respond to black protests from below against Jim Crow and support from our allies from above, speaking of the socialist camp and national liberation movements, to retreat from the more egregious aspects of U.S. apartheid, causing U.S. President Eisenhower to send federal troops to Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, uh, causing his uh, successor, John F. Kennedy, to send troops to Ole Miss, Oxford, Mississippi, University of Mississippi in the early 1960s, to enforce desegregation decrees and prevent black students from being mauled. And to show you that this was not just a sectional dispute, of course, we recall what happened in Boston in the 1970s when black students were assaulted because they were only seeking an education by getting bused across town to mostly non-black schools, or what happened in Yonkers, New York in the 1980s, represented quite adequately in the movie that all of us should watch, Show Me a Hero, where you saw a major uprising against the idea of desegregated housing. So this anti-government psychosis stems from the fact that oftentimes the government under pressure has been forced to capitulate to mass demands for equality, and that has enraged and upset what could be called today in 2020 the Trump base, which also helps to explain why his so-called popularity rating still is at 43, and as of today, it's unclear whether or not he will be defeated, as he rightfully should be on the first Tuesday in November. The other strand of this anti-government psychosis, of course, comes from the fact that between 1861 and 1865, the U.S. government was forced to wage a war against slave owners in Dixie, and then in the process of that war, appropriated without compensation of millions, if not billions of dollars in property embodied in the human beings that are Africans, enslaved Africans at that, and that enraged many slaveholders who therefore had their fortunes weakened. And so this anti-government psychosis has made it difficult to build a public health care system. In fact, here we have the irrationality and the anomaly of in the midst of a pandemic, for-profit hospitals laying off hospital orderlies, laying off nurses, slashing the wages of doctors. Here we have homelessness stalking the land, and yet Hotels are standing empty. Here we have a situation whereby unemployment has reached Great Depression-like levels, and yet 
hunger has been accompanying that unemployment, while farmers are plowing up crops or pouring milk into gutters, rather than sending those crops to feed and nourish the hungry. This is a direct result of the magic of the marketplace, of having so-called market forces reign, that is to say having capitalist reign, to put it bluntly, and denigrating the very idea of government. This is what backwards retrograde ideology has delivered to us today in 2020. Although the corporate media didn't cover it, this economic crisis didn't just begin with the corona pandemic. For months during the last autumn, the Fed was pumping trillions of dollars into the markets to save Wall Street. Well, this reminds us of something else. In some ways, we are neo-slaves. What I mean is, is that on the upside, as the 1%, or perhaps more accurately, the 0.001% are making profits hand over fist, on the upside, those profits are privatized, going to line their pockets, going into their grubby little paws, if you like. But on the downside, when they fail to pursue remedies to forestall or deal more adequately with a pandemic, which public health specialists have been talking about for years. On the downside, as hotels go down and rental car companies like Hertz go down and cruise ships like Carnival Cruise Line go down, they come to the government and dig their grubby little paws into the tax dollars that we supply to Washington from the sweat of our brow and walk away like thieves. So in some ways, we are neo-slaves. That is to say, we're working to basically support the 0.001% who are no more than parasites. The problem is, is that this situation has become unsustainable. The United States is borrowing money by the billions, if not trillions, and in fact, increasingly borrowing money from the People's Bank of China At the same time, the United States would like to initiate a new Cold War against China in order to distract attention away from the ham-fisted incompetence of the Trump regime in dealing with this pandemic, which has been recently articulated by the U.S. government scientist, Dr. Richard Bright, not to mention uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. The problem, of course, with this new Cold War against China is that the People's Bank of China buys U.S. Treasury bills, which the United States needs the PBOC to continue doing so that the PBOC can supply money that then can be turned over to the 0.001%. At the same time, the United States is trying to wage a new Cold War against China by trying to encircle China by, for example, encouraging India. And recall that just a few days ago, there was a sharp skirmish on the India-China border between India and Chinese troops. Recall that as well, the other member of this so-called quadrangle, United States, India, Japan, and Australia, Japan just uh, passed a significant hike in its military budget, which is, I'm sure, comes as a surprise to many listeners who probably recall that supposedly uh, Japan uh, only has self-defense forces, but that's another mythology that I think needs to be deep-sixed. 
And at the same time that Australia continues to act as a cat's paw for U.S. imperialism, pressuring China in the midst of a pandemic to let international inspectors, presumably led by the United States of America, to come into China and to try to ascertain uh, how this virus got started. Of course, China has not reacted very well uh, to that demand. And in fact, this has led to what the, the U.S. authorities call wolf warrior diplomacy. If you have not seen it, you should watch Wolf Warrior 1 and Wolf Warrior 2, these two Chinese movies that portray uh, Chinese uh, military and intelligence officials basically subduing, if not subjugating, uh, Euro-American counterparts and peers on the continent of Africa, by the way. And so we're in a new stage, it's apparent. Uh, there is something to be said for what Lawrence Summers said in that editorial that appeared in the Financial Times of London. A few cases of coronavirus have cropped up again in Wuhan, which was the center of the outbreak earlier this year. And the Chinese have responded with a plan to test all 11 million of the residents of Wuhan City. And yet the United States has no coherent testing program at all. Well, that's an understatement. In fact, this Abbott Labs machine that Trump has touted in his press conferences, uh, which are no more than a reality show, interestingly enough, the press has now reported that these machines, these toaster-sized machines that are used for testing, basically they return false negative. That is to say, you can be positive, but the test shows that you are negative, <laughs> which is basically the last thing that we need right now. But the situation gets worse. Uh, right now, we're seeing an eruption of what's called vaccine nationalism. Understandably, there's a race to see what country can develop the vaccine for COVID-19, which will allow, to a degree, folks to go back to work or go back to school. But the nationalism is arising because Sanofi, which is a major alleged French corporation, a pharmaceutical corporation, has said that U.S. nationals would get first dibs with regards to this vaccine if Sanofi develops it, which has outraged many people in France. Uh, the CEO of Sanofi said this is because U.S. money has come to subsidize Sanofi, but that's not going down very well in France, particularly since a competing thought has emerged, as articulated on the African continent, which is that a vaccine should be considered to be a public good, so to speak. After all, if we are to escape another wave, as deadly as the wave of April 2020 of this coronavirus and its accoutrement, which is COVID-19, fundamentally, 8 billion people are going to have to be vaccinated, which means that if you tr just try to vaccinate people in the United States and not vaccinate people in Latin America, that's not going to work very well. But then that clashes with the reigning ideology of the United States of America, which puts in the first place the idea, the antiquated archaic idea of the magic of the marketplace, that market forces should reign, and that the idea of public good is something that folks feel is from a bad science fiction novel. 
simultaneously, even if a flawless vaccine is developed, you have this anti-vaccine movement in the United States of America where folks feel that vaccines themselves are illegitimate, which suggests that they will not take the vaccine, which would then mean that there would be gaping holes in the public health system of this country. So buckle your seatbelts, boys and girls. There's a rough ride ahead. The United States sabotaged a United Nations effort to call a truce in 12 wars around the world. And the U.S. has doubled down on its sanctions against Venezuela and Iran, despite the COVID crisis. Isn't this a form of germ warfare by the U.S.? Well, if so, it would not be the first time. And I would encourage your listeners to do a thorough study of Fort Detrick, Maryland, D-E-T-R-I-C-K, which is the devil's coven, if you like, of all manner of bacteria and microbes that the United States has been cooking up for purposes that remain unclear. Likewise, I should say that the U.S. attempt to pull out of the World Health Organization in the midst of a pandemic It's like throwing the pilot out of the airplane in the midst of a flight. It's basically irrational, but once again, it points to the attempt by the Trump regime to distract attention from its own incompetence by pointing the finger of accusation at the WHO, which conveniently for the Trump regime has an African leader, Dr. Tedros, which then plays to the racism that's never too far from the surface when you talk about the Trump base. It also speaks to this very disturbing trend of the United States pulling out of international organizations, international accords. In some ways, it reminds me of what happened in the 1930s, for example, when Japan pulled out of the League of Nations as a conditioned precedent, if you like, to be unleashed so it could bomb the U.S. colony in Hawaii on December 7th, 1941. The United States, of course, was pulled out of UNESCO, United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, headquartered in Paris. The U.S. administration has sought to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. The United States has made very disturbing remarks about pulling out of other kinds of international accords, agreements, so as to flex its muscles. So for example, the accord with Iran concerning nuclear weapons, even though the United States has sought to pull out of that accord, is going to try to enforce that accord against Iran by tightening sanctions uh, within the next few weeks or months against Iran. And you mentioned this comic opera attempted invasion of Venezuela by U.S.-based mercenaries in South Florida, the Bay of Piglets, echoing the Bay of Pigs, invasion of Cuba in 1961, which was similarly thwarted, when asked about U.S. complicity in this particular escapade, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Michael Pompeo said there was, quote, no direct, unquote, U.S. involvement in this caper, which suggests that there might have been indirect U.S. involvement. What does that mean? Did they drop off these mercenaries off the coast of Venezuela? that they provide reconnaissance. It remains unclear, 
But certainly that speaks to why we need strong international organizations, for certainly this is a case that should be taken to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. It's a case that should be debated at the Organization of American States in Washington, D.C., conveniently enough. And certainly it's well past time for the United Nations Security Council to have urgent consultations about this attempt to overthrow the Maduro regime, which is obviously and palpably in violation of the basic precepts of international law and goes against the grain of international peace and security. That was Dr. Gerald Horn speaking from the University of Houston. Dr. Carrie Hemming-Smith of the University of Minnesota School of Public Health is dismayed by the death toll from coronavirus in rural America. She's co-author of an article that shows rural communities with black or indigenous majorities have the highest rates of premature death, and that was before the current epidemic. Yeah, I think when we're talking about racial disparities within rural areas, we can't do it without talking about the current moment and about what's happening with COVID. You brought up the issue of healthcare access, and that's a fundamental and persistent issue in rural communities. In the last decade, more than 125 rural hospitals have closed across the country. When those hospitals have closed, there's convincing research, compelling research to show that there's an increase in mortality in the communities where those hospitals close. And beyond increase in mortality, there are all sorts of other ripple effects that makes it harder just to access basic health care. And that's particularly important for people who have chronic conditions, underlying health issues, and people who are members of racial or ethnic minority groups in rural communities are much more likely to have chronic conditions and underlying health issues. So that really impacts them if they have trouble getting the care that they need. There's also an economic impact of those hospitals closing. In many cases, hospitals are the biggest employer in town or one of the biggest employers in town. When they close, they take those jobs with them. They also take many of the people who were working in the hospital whose careers are in healthcare with them too, and they will move on to find other jobs. And so that hurts the community economic base, the tax base of the community. All of this disproportionately impacts communities of color in rural areas. At the University of Minnesota Rural Health Research Center, we've done some work not on hospital closures, but on closures of obstetric units in rural areas. And there's much like the rural hospital closure crisis, there's been a crisis of obstetric units closing even if a hospital remains open, which has obvious ramifications for individuals being able to get the care that they need around a very important life event. Uh, And we found that rural communities with higher percentage of Black women are more likely to lose their obstetric service. This isn't random. This has a lot to do with where people live, with state policy in those places, with whether or not states have expanded Medicaid. A lot of the rural communities with large percentages of Black populations are also in states that have not expanded Medicaid, largely in the Southeast, 
none of this is coincidental. These things are all closely connected. And so when we look at the current moment at COVID, it's vitally important that people have access to healthcare, both to deal with COVID, but also to deal with all of the other chronic conditions and underlying health conditions that they may have. And so those communities that had lost hospitals are in a much more precarious position right now. We've also seen rural hospitals close since COVID started, since this pandemic started, and some of them are citing COVID as the reason for their closure because they're not able to perform elective procedures or even routine visits, and those make up a bulk of their revenue on a daily and monthly basis. And so they just haven't been able to keep the lights on in some places. We seem to see a replication of the same ethnic disparities in health care, in poverty, in many of the other indices, a replication in rural areas of the same problems we see in urban settings. So how is rural poverty different? Yeah, it's a really good question. Rural poverty tends to be deeper, more chronic, longer lasting, and bigger. Poverty rates are higher in rural areas than they are in urban areas. That's across the board, but that's also true within racial and ethnic groups. You take any group and rural populations have higher poverty rates and lower income. And so the issues that we see in urban areas are are heightened in rural areas. And I think it's important to bring attention to this because when we talk about racial and ethnic disparities, some people erroneously use that as shorthand for talking about metropolitan areas, talking about urban areas. People tend to, for whatever reason, forget that we have incredible diversity across every measure in rural areas too. And we always have. The diversity in rural areas predates the history of our country by many centuries. So this is nothing new, but I think too often we as a society and certainly the media, sometimes policymakers, are guilty of thinking of rural places as being populated entirely by white male farmers. <laughs> White male farmers certainly live in rural areas, but they make up a very small percentage of rural residents overall. And it's really, really important that we recognize the diversity within rural communities and then also the disparities and inequities that show up in rural places in many ways in the same way they show up in urban places. Yes, in the Deep South, there are plenty of counties that are majority Black. And in the West, being a rural dweller may well mean you're a Native American. And up in Alaska, lots of Native Alaskas live way outside the cities. Absolutely. And then along the Rio Grande in Texas, we see a lot of majority Hispanic counties in rural areas. And we see a few majority Hispanic or Latino counties farther north in the country. Sometimes that's closely aligned with where there's a lot of agricultural activity happening and who is working those jobs. When people think of rural areas, many of them picture peaceful, bucolic 
communities, but in fact, there is a long history of gross and cruel violence in the rural areas of the United States against ethnic minorities, Native Americans, Blacks, and Hispanics. Absolutely. I think it's among the deepest violence and deepest injustices in our country. And when we look back at sites of some of the most horrific violence, going back to genocide of Native folks and slavery, lynchings, and on and on of Black folks in the Southeast, many of those things happened in rural areas. Our rural areas are just sites of horrific violence, horrific injustice. Not all of them and good things have happened in rural communities and continue to happen in rural communities. We see incredible resilience and resourcefulness, incredible communities in rural areas across the country. But we certainly can't assume that all rural areas are these idyllic pastoral places. They certainly aren't. But this kind of legacy does have an impact on delivery of services and protection of folks' life and limb in places like that. Absolutely, yes. The same people who have been mistreated for our country's entire history and going beyond our country's history are the same people who struggle to access health care today. And sometimes it's a matter of whether or not your small community has a hospital or a health care facility within it. We know that communities that are majority people of color or that have lower incomes, higher poverty rates, they're all more likely to have poorer access to care. But beyond access to care, we see more underlying health conditions. We see lower life expectancy in those same communities. And then we see inequities in access to health insurance. You may have a health facility or a, health, a hospital, a health care facility not far from you, and yet you don't qualify for Medicaid in your state because your state hasn't passed. Medicaid and the states that haven't passed Medicaid expansion, many of them are located in the Southeast where we see a lot of rural Black communities. And of course, that is no coincidence, a denial of access to services to those targeted groups. It's no coincidence at all. And I think too often we look at health care in its own silo and we think health care is one issue. And then we look at an issue like voting rights and political representation and assume that that's a separate issue. But they're one in the same. And so in these same communities where people have been disenfranchised, kept out of the vote, kept out of being able to participate in the political system where people are not represented in political leadership in a proportional way, we see that people aren't treated fairly. And it's no coincidence at all that people are not getting equitable access to health care when we're seeing that people are also not getting equitable access to political power. It's policymakers and political leaders who make these decisions about um, expanding Medicaid for one, but also how we allocate resources. And it's important that people have a voice in the process. And tell us about the particular difficulties faced by Native Americans and Alaskan Natives. 
Yeah, I mean, these are especially heightened in this moment of COVID-19. We are seeing quite a bit of attention on the Navajo Nation, which is largely in Arizona, but spills over a little into a few other states. We're seeing incredibly high rates of COVID, of mortality, devastation in those communities. It's not unique to Navajo Nation. This is true of tribal lands across the country. These are places where people have been systematically kept out of a lot of economic opportunity. Access to healthcare is often not as good as in other communities. And then access to basic resources. I think people are finally recognizing the fact that some people living on tribal lands don't have access to things that a lot of us take for granted, like operational plumbing within your household, running water so that you can wash your hands, access to decent, healthy food. All of those things are disproportionately harder to come by on tribal lands. In our own work, we found that folks who live in majority Native communities in rural areas, so those are um, usually people living on tribal lands and reservations, face among the highest mortality rates in the entire country compared with urban places, compared with any other rural places. These people face some of the highest mortality rates. And this is related to underlying health conditions. It's related to access to health care. But again, it's also related to access to economic opportunity, access to safe housing, access to decent lands. It's also not a coincidence where tribal lands and reservations have ended up. These were not always fertile lands, not always places that were particularly desirable or attractive. And that's why we moved people to those places. We see that in our history books. And I think sometimes people assume that that's history. And yet we're seeing it play out today. This is not just history. This is real life. In fact, just this morning, I saw a new statistic that said in New Mexico, Native folks make up 11% of the population. And as of today, they make up 50% of New Mexico's COVID fatalities. That's just inconscionable, and we can do better. That was Dr. Carrie Hemming-Smith at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Reparations for historical wrongs has emerged as a political issue, and genetic science now tells us more than we've ever known about our ancestors. But can genetics become a useful tool for reparations? We spoke with Dr. Jada Ben Torres of Vanderbilt University. She's author of a recent paper titled, Reparational Genetics, Genomic Data and the Case for Reparations in the Caribbean. This is a question actually that's been explored by a number of researchers in much more depth. But my take on this is that genetics is a tool. It's one that should be used appropriately. Depending on the context, there may or may not be a place for genetics. In some cases, genetics might be useful for showing continuity that the people who were harmed are indeed ancestors of those who are living today. In other cases, DNA might be divisive. It would be my largest sort of fear or concern if genetics were used in a way to suggest who is a member of this group and who is a member of that group. That's, I don't think that's an appropriate use of genetic, genetic ancestry or genetic tools. 
So you would look forward to genetic tools being used not to exclude people, but to include folks. Yes, specifically in the case of just showing that there is continuity, that the things that occurred in the past are actually indeed connected to people, not only biologically, but also socially, culturally, etc. Well, specifically, it was widely held until rather recently that the indigenous populations of most of the Caribbean islands had been virtually wiped out by 1550, that they didn't exist as organized communities anyway. But in more recent years, there's been discussion of the actual living indigenous history in the inhabitants of those islands. Yes. And this resurgence movement, indigenous resurgence movement, it looks different on different islands. Uh, A lot of it has to do with numbers. In smaller islands, there tends to just be smaller populations in general. And individuals identifying as indigenous in the very recent past would not have done that. Being seen as native or indigenous was, was not a positive thing. Only now where people are seeing that this is okay, that there's pride in, in their past, despite the horrors of it, are people beginning to self-identify uh, or at least identify partial ancestry among indigenous populations. And you mentioned the Garifuna earlier in your remarks. Uh, explain who they are. So these are indigenous persons of primarily in St. Vincent. There's actually a very large Garifuna community now kind of in Central America. There's another community um, now in New York as well. And I imagine in another part of the world. But the Garifuna are descendants of indigenous peoples of St. Vincent. And they actually waged a series of wars with colonizers with the English. Some battles they won, others they did not. In the end, a large segment of the indigenous population was exiled. And it's actually kind of important to mention that the Garifuna kind of originate as a descendant group of both African and indigenous people. There's a, an origin story regarding a wrecked slave ship that landed somewhere outside of St. Vincent and, and some enslaved Africans were able to get to shore and then were incorporated into the community. And from there, you see the emergence of Garifuna communities. So in you know my own work, which that project has kind of come to a, a close for now, but while I was doing the field work, there were some really interesting things happening with these conferences. So there's a Garifuna organization, very active organization in St. Vincent, and generally annually they'll hold conferences. And some really interesting things happen during these conferences in the sense that the descendants of those who were exiled, those who landed in Honduras and then spread throughout Central America and then into the United States, they actually make a journey home back to St. Vincent. And you get to see these reunions. And it's probably one of the most powerful things that I've seen where people kind of come back and they recognize each other in each other's faces. They see family. And in some instances, the language that was definitely not lost but limited on St. Vincent, is being retaught by those who were the descendants of those who were, were exiled. So this is this really interesting dynamic I mean, resurgence that's happening on the island. Now, the title of your piece is Reparations Genetics, and the audience for this program is mostly in the United States. When people in the U.S. look at reparations, many of them think of getting a check in the mail made out to them 
personally, but when we're talking about reparations in the Caribbean and the uses of genetics, we're not talking about using genetic tools to decide who, as individuals or families, get checks. That's correct. That's not at all how I'd imagine genetic technologies would be used. So for that paper entitled Reparational Genetics, it's actually a play on words with recreational genetics, right? So these are direct-to-consumer genetic ancestry tests that you can purchase online, send in your DNA, and then learn something about your genetic ancestry. Because it's supposed to be for fun, as a sort of general title, they've been dubbed recreational genetics. So sitting at this conference, I was thinking about the ways in which genetic technologies may or may not be used, and then it occurred to me, I was like, oh, reparational genetics. So again, what it's looking like in, in the Caribbean is that reparations has more to do with an investment in the island's infrastructure, their ability to access global resources so that they can improve their own communities. That's kind of more of the level rather than individual checks. The genetic aspect, if it were to be incorporated at all, it would have more to do with showing continuity that those individuals who were harmed in the past actually have descendants. And this would, again, be just one line of evidence among other ways of knowing about the past, whether it be archaeology or family history or various texts or records. And again, the question largely revolves around these indigenous peoples who many had thought were extinct. Right. And it's, it's actually pretty dangerous. I would say dangerous. It's not the best idea to rely solely on genetics to identify indigenous ancestry. Again, genetic ancestry is not always indicative of how a person self-identifies. If we look back in people's family trees, you will likely, specifically in the Caribbean, you'll likely find that there are people in everyone's family who would self-identify in a very different way than, let's say, that individual test taker. People have ancestry from Africa, from Europe, from the Americas, from other parts of the world. So those ancestors would have identified in different ways. And that may or may not have some bearing on how you, in present day, self-identify. With these genetic ancestry tests, depending on the part of the genome that you're looking at, you may or may not detect indigenous ancestry, even though a person might actually have indigenous ancestry. It's really dependent on where you're looking in the genome, as well as the quality of your ancestry test. Are you looking at enough places across the genome? Do you have the appropriate reference groups to compare your data to? These are the sorts of limitations that exist in, in terms of interpreting ancestry tests. And then I'll reiterate that genetic or biological ancestry is only one way that people build families and build relationships. There are certainly many examples that you and I can both think of where there are groups of people who describe themselves, think of themselves, know themselves to be family, but they don't actually share DNA. It's just one way of, of knowing about the past. In the Northeast United States, many Native American groups that had been said to be extinct actually lived on, but visually looked very much like African Americans when they began demanding their rights. Right. So this is really, really interesting, both in the United States and North America and throughout the Caribbean. I was actually listening to Twitter conference last week. Uh, it was about decolonizing DNA. And I learned about instances where individuals are taking these DNA ancestry tests from some dubious companies 
And these dubious companies are reporting back indigenous ancestry. And then these people getting these results are trying to use these results to say that they're indigenous and to use some of the policies that were put in place for indigenous, actual indigenous people. And this is a direct affront, right, to ideas of sovereignty, about having the power to say who our group is, who our community is. And then, you know, other individuals trying to use DNA in ways that have not been sanctioned or approved or thought of as appropriate for deciding who is part of the community. In the Caribbean, my concern would be these ancestry tests will show that people are very mixed admixed. And that's just what happened in the Caribbean. It was a crossroads. People were coming and going and and leaving their DNA in in the process. So there is already a historical narrative of mixing within the Caribbean. We also kind of need to keep in mind the ideas that we have about race and identity, they change over time. So the ways in which people identify now might not have been the ways that they would have identified in the past. So by using genetic ancestry and then sort of imprinting or imposing, I guess is a better word, imposing today's ideas about identity, it can be really difficult to interpret who was who and what was what. And again, you know, genetic ancestry, it it definitely serves a purpose, but it is highly dependent on individuals, personal agendas, the political context of the time in terms of how you make sense of that. In my own research, particularly not only among the Garifuna, but in the First Peoples community of Arima, the genetic ancestry has been a particularly useful for community empowerment. Because many of the indigenous groups in the Caribbean, they were basically got that first wave of colonialism. So languages, cultures, populations were decimated, not completely eliminated, but just decimated. So it's been helpful for some individuals to see that genetically, biologically, it still is in people, despite the fact that the language and some cultural traditions are kind of lost to the past. Again, that sort of situation doesn't apply everywhere, but in the Caribbean, in the English-speaking Caribbean specifically, it's, it's a bit of a different situation. Yes, I'm aware that in Puerto Rico, genetic testing has become all the rage and that lots of folks are very eager to find out that they have Native American backgrounds. Although there are some folks who worry that some of these Puerto Ricans are hoping to have Native American background so that they can downplay their African genealogy. Yeah, and that's certainly a concern. I have no doubt that that is definitely a a very real concern. I've had the good fortune of being able to start a project in Puerto Rico. I'm working with um, various community, Afro-Puerto Rican communities, and the folks that I work with, they're actually very interested in learning more about their African ancestry, only in the sense that oftentimes information about African peoples, African ancestry specifically has been downplayed. It's not been seen as important. So they want some more rich details about, you know, genetically, who do they connect with within Africa? Because it's Puerto Rico, and it's got this sort of, again, kind of crossroads in the Caribbean. When I look at the genetic ancestry among Afro-Puerto Ricans, there, of course, is a very strong African component, more so than you see in sort of the general populace. But we also do see indigenous ancestry. um, And we see it showing up in Afro-Puerto Ricans in ways that it doesn't necessarily show up in the uh, general populace. This is something that I'm just now finding out, so I have to do a lot more research to fully explain some of the patterns that I'm seeing. But it's interesting in the ways in which the histories of different peoples come together in and is reflected in contemporary genetics. 
the African component of the population in the Dominican Republic is even more prominent. But many Dominicans have a problem with that. Some genetic testing might be in order. There have actually been some studies already that have been done, and they actually just pretty much reiterate what you've just said, that there is a high amount of African ancestry. And, and, you know, again, it's really important to consider the history, recent history, political history of the Dominican Republic and its relationship with Haiti. Some of that uh, will work to explain why there are individuals who hope to explain away their African ancestry. So it's kind of this very deep, very uncomfortable on on some levels history, but it, it kind of makes sense as to how people are reacting to these tests. I think for many of your listeners, they might have questions about these genetic ancestry companies. And what I would say is that there are some companies that are better than others. If you are interested in doing this, you need to understand why are you doing this in the first place? What do you hope to learn? If you're interested in learning more about health, there are particular companies that are better at that. If you're interested in learning about genetic ancestry, there are better companies for that. I would also recommend that prior to sending your DNA off, you take a lot of time and it is a time investment. But read about these companies, figure out who they are, what products they offer, and the products that they offer, what it can actually tell you. Oftentimes, there's a large critique against direct-to-consumer companies is that they're overselling their products, that people think they'll find out who they're related to and they'll get names and maybe addresses. But you need to inform yourself, educate yourself about how these tests actually work and what sort of information, what level of information you can expect. That being said, I would also note that in the United States, there is a very tough, difficult relationship among minority populations in the medical establishment or even you know, scientific establishment. And these exist for a good reason. There is definitely a history and there's a reason why people are doubtful or mistrusting of various scientists. That being said, we have to remember that if our communities are not involved in research, then the cures and the solutions for our communities will not be developed. And this is a really difficult sort of position to be in. Ideally, there will be more individuals that go into research so that you have people who look like you who are taking your DNA sample, who are asking the questions that you're interested in. And that is happening. But in the meantime, we also kind of have to think about if we want cures for our communities, we have to find ways to participate in these different studies, learn about genetics, learn about science in general, and find ways to be active and educate ourselves. That way we can empower our communities and then sort of have the cures of the 21st century applied to our own concerns. That was Dr. Jada Ben-Torres, Director of the Laboratory of Genetic Anthropology and Biocultural Studies at Vanderbilt University. Mumia Abu-Jamal, the nation's best-known political prisoner, has been experiencing the pandemic from behind bars in Pennsylvania. Prisons are hot spots of contagion, but Abu Jamal says it's hard for individual prisoners to see the big picture. Well, we don't see much because we're locked up 23 hours and 15 minutes every day. That is to say, everybody in prison all across the state of Pennsylvania are under this emergency decree Ever since then, we've been locked down 23 hours and 15 minutes. So you're out of the cell 45 minutes a day. It can be morning, afternoon, or night. But in that 45 minutes, you got to bathe. You can call a friend or family. You can get on the kiosk. You can clean your cell. 
Other than that, you're locked in your cell. It's like the whole state is a whole. H-O-L-E now. And that's how it was on death row. That's how it was in the hole. Well, it's like that all around now in the name of health. We've heard that people have been sick, mostly in Phoenix, which is near Philadelphia. But there have been other outbreaks, but there isn't a lot of coverage of that. Uh, the counties seem to have been getting it the worst. Of course, they're closest to the community. You know, people are coming in and going out. And I'm speaking of staff members, volunteers, visitors, you name it. But what happens in the counties makes its way to the state. It's just a matter of time. I think mass incarceration has become, I hate to say it, but I believe it, normalized. That is to say, for all intents and purposes, who gives a damn? And, you know, while your family or your loved ones might care, the so-called average American, even the average American who is himself locked down in his home or her home, they find this intolerable. They find it outrageous. They're going nuts. But, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, under the crazy uh, Rockefeller drug laws, all across the country, you've got millions of people who are locked down, you know, for years in Pennsylvania and for decades, like Maroon Schultz and other people who've been locked down for decades in solitary confinement. And so, you know, people are getting a taste of this, even though it's a relaxed, distant taste. It's a taste. Because you can't go out when you want to go out. You can't leave. You're locked in. And it's safer, to be frank. And what we've seen is people kind of burst loose. And I hope I miss my guess. I hope I'm wrong. But I have a sneaking suspicion that we're going to see a second wave in this country. And the fact that it's already the country with the highest number of COVID-19-related deaths tells me uh, we're going to see some really great days and some really high numbers. Uh, the numbers are jumping. It must be 2,000 a day, uh, 1,300 to 2,500 a day. And those numbers are rising. In the last few weeks, they've gone from hundreds to tens of thousands. How does it but feel it, to you about the fact that even though a virus doesn't discriminate, we've seen that it right. now does discriminate? Well, because it follows the economic realities of the system in which it operates. That is to say... The people who are in touch with the public, the bus drivers, the nurses, many of the doctors, police, fire, a lot of them, especially in the big cities, are black and Puerto Rican. And they're out there, you know, to feed their families, support their families, and they're in contact. And many of them have very little protection. They're being treated like Essentially, they call them essential workers, but they're being treated essentially like all workers. They're like, you know, they're like go to work and shut up. They're like disposable workers. They are. So if you really are honest about it, to call them essential workers is a lie. It's like, uh, it's like calling a prison a correctional institution. You know and I know, they don't do much correcting here. All they do is harass people and make them worse. Essential workers are really disposable workers. They're the people, and you, know, and you know, as the news has caught up with that reality, and we've gotten the reporting of, say, 60% of the people 
people are dying in New York are black and Latino. You've seen other parts of the state, the United States, whiter parts of the state, saying, come on, unlock us, we're not those guys. And we're seeing that. So they're, they're really disposable to the economic and political system. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.